Well, good morning. If you're here for the first time or one of your first times, uh, we appreciate you stepping out. Sometimes I know it's harder to walk into a new place. If you're joining us online, again, thank you for joining us. So this is the scenario. Somebody knocks at your door. It's a, a person wanting to give you a free demonstration. They will clean one carpet in one room, and they will do an amazing job. Do you have any doubt that they will do an amazing job? No. But you know there's a reason they want to impress you with how clean your carpet is. Right? Because they want to bring you to a point of decision to buy their vacuum. It will be a, a, a mighty fine work on the carpet. But it will have an intent that you would decide to buy their vacuum cleaner. Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came doing far greater works than that, far mightier works. But you know, he did those for a reason. He wanted to bring you and me to a decision point. Well, what is that decision point? Why, why did Jesus do those things? We're going to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you open it to John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 12, wrestling with this question, why did Jesus perform mighty works? Why did Jesus perform mighty works? Have been with us. We started about four weeks ago, and, and John introduced Jesus as the eternal word who had always been. He was there at creation, eternal existence. He was God, and he was with God, introducing the idea of God three in one, and that God's self-expression, revelation of self, was going to take on flesh and blood. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago when Mary, as a virgin, was come upon by the Holy Spirit and, and produced Jesus. Now, before Jesus went into public ministry, God called a guy named John the Baptist to get the people ready. Because it had been 400 years since Israel had had a prophetic word from God, and they're not used to hearing from God. So we're going to send this guy, John the Baptist, and he's going to get people ready. And, and man, he got a crowd. I mean, John got a lot of folks. So much so that the religious authorities, the, remember, Israel was a theocracy. They had both spiritual and civil power. It's kind of like, what is going on with this guy? They sent out a delegation to check him out. What, John, like, what are you up to? And John said, look, I, I'm just a voice who's saying get ready for an incredible work of God. Well, eventually, John starts pointing his disciples to follow Jesus. How many people with a ministry funnel him some other place? But that's what John the Baptist did. He said, never about me, it's about him. So last week we saw a couple guys, Andrew and John, uh, start following Jesus. And Andrew brings his brother Peter. And they talk to Philip. And they talk to Nathaniel. And, and so now this group is with Jesus. And we catch them when they, they show up at a social event. Uh, John 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Weddings were a huge, huge social event in the day. Sometimes they could go as long as a week. We don't know the connection, but Jesus shows up with his mom and disciples. And it's probably five or six, Andrew and John and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip, probably. Um, but in verse 3, there's a problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
They have no wine. So why is Mary coming to Jesus? Well, probably at this point, Joseph, Jesus' father, is not mentioned because he's deceased. And in those days, uh, when a woman's husband died, well, she relied on her oldest son for solve the problem. She came to count on Jesus' resourcefulness. Was she looking for him to work a miracle? Probably not. But hey, can you, can you handle this? The wine running out, well, the groom could have been sued for that by the bride's family. The, the, the whole responsibility, financial responsibility, was that of the groom. And you run out of wine, that's an embarrassment. And you're guilty in a court of law. So we don't know what Mary's connection is. She's got concern. Hey, hey Jesus, can you, can you figure something out here? Uh, verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman. Okay, that is a courteous term, but it's not an endearing term. Uh, he says, uh, what does that have to do with us? What's going on here? Jesus lets Mary know that the relationship is changing. Her expectations and needs of Jesus, they're now subordinate to Jesus' call to mission. And he'll get to him if he can, but he's got a higher priority, and that's following God. And you know, that speaks to us. People say family, and I'm not saying family's not important. Biological family. But there's a higher priority, and that's God's call and the family of God. Now, before you think I'm going down this road, I'm, I'm married. Uh, we've got two kids, 22 and 25. They're living in Lincoln. They're outside the home. Uh, this week was Lincoln Public Schools, uh, fall break. So my wife and I went to Luritzen Gardens on Monday. So that's a family thing. Every week, I get together with both of my sons for a meal, a lunch or a dinner. Today, after church, we'll probably go as a family. So I'm not saying we're blown off family here. So hear me on this, okay? God's pro-family, but it's not the ultimate priority. Jesus himself said this in, in Matthew 12. He was asked this question. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Look what Jesus says. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who? Who is my brother? And who? Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples said, Behold, my brother, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's prioritizing the family of God. It doesn't mean we can't do both, but there's got to be a priority of one over the other. Years ago, we had a couple uh, who moved back to Lincoln to be near her family in Omaha. They helped us start the church. Um, and they would go to Omaha for events every once a month or so. But they let their family in Omaha know, we got to go to church first. Got to meet with our church family, and then, and then we'll be on the way. And if you want to have lunch, we'll grab something on the way. If you want to wait for us, great. We can do both, but I've got this priority, the family of God. Now, sometimes following God is going to bring us in conflict with our family. 
When I wanted staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, after graduating from college, boy, that set my parents off. We had the initial blow up, and a year later, I'm, I'm living in Colorado, they're in New Jersey, and my mom, at 59 years old, graduates from college. She was working at a bank, we needed a degree, and they're having a big graduation party, so I think, I'm going. You graduate from college at 59, I'm going. So I go up there, I'm at the party, and a couple of my aunts, my dad's sisters, they corner me. So, oh, what's this campus crusade thing? I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, this is in the family now, and we're at mom's graduation party, and you're calling me out on this thing. There are times the call of God is going to bring you into conflict with your family. Jesus says the priority is the call of God, the family of God. So what's Jesus' beef here? What's his concern? Well, here it is, second part of verse 4. It says, my hour has not yet come. Our always refers to his crucifixion. When he came, he came for that hour. And Jesus had a plan to slowly reveal his identity leading up to that hour. He didn't want to get ahead because Messiah in the Jewish population was freighted, loaded with political expectations. Israel was being ruled occupied by Rome, and they wanted somebody to throw him off, and Jesus didn't want people to come and try and make him a king before his time. And eventually, they would turn on him when they figured out he's not going to throw off Roman rule, but, but Jesus had a timeline. So that's Jesus' issue. So, so Mary has been rebuked. Uh, verse 5 says this, uh, his mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Here's a question. When you get called out by the word of God, when it challenges you, he challenges you to do something different, to stop, to start, how do you respond? How do we respond? I mean, Mary could have went off in a huff. Son, how dare you talk to me like that, son? Do we just want Jesus when he tells us what what we want to hear? Or are we willing to hear it when he says, no, this needs to change? Is Jesus just our genie that we pull out at given times? Or, or does he have carte blanche to call a hard shot? Mary doesn't walk away. She receives it, and she tells the servants to do as he says. So verse 6, that's what they did. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons. Stone was more impervious It didn't let impurities through, so it was used in religious cleansing kind of ceremonies. Jesus then filled the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. I want you to notice here, Jesus' provision is not halfway. Take that sucker all the way up to the top. So when Jesus talks about giving life, he's not giving it in in, in part. He's saying, fill that hummer all the way up. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Jesus' desire is that we'd have fullness of life. And when he's going to meet this need, he's not going to do it halfway. He's going to do it all out. So fill those up. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw out, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So I just want you to think here. 
you're one of those uh, servants at the well, and you've drawn the water, maybe you've drawn the water up from the well, and you filled the stone pot, and you filled it up to the brim, and now Jesus says, take that, take a sample out, and take it to the head waiter. How do you feel going to the head waiter? I mean, you could look, if he drinks it, man, this is water, you could look really dumb here. Jesus, you better come through, or I'm going to look really foolish. So he does, he, he takes it to the head waiter. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had, come, had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people had drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. And so uh, how are you feeling if you're the, the groom? I mean, you don't know anything what's going on. But the idea is, man, if, if you got... Good wine and cheap wine, serve the good wine first. Because, you know, people get a little inebriated and they, they can't tell. Just give me something else to drink. Jesus is making a display of power here. But it's not a naked display of power. He's hoping that people will see a deeper reality. He's just not a guy who can do some amazing things. He's the eternal son of God. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. That's where Jesus wants to push us, that we would believe in him. Believe what? That he is the eternal son of God, capable of taking on our sin, capable, after being confirmed dead, of rising from the grave three days later. Why did Jesus perform mighty works? Here's why. Jesus performed mighty works to lead us to believe that he is the Son of God. Jesus performed mighty works to lead us to believe that he is the Son of God. But if you've been with us, that, that shouldn't surprise us because when we started, we said, at the end of his gospel, John didn't pull any punches. He said, this is why I'm writing. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, this is what he said. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. So this is just one of many. John says a lot of these are not written in this book. But these that I've recorded, they've been written so that you may believe, there's our word again, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and, remember we're talking about God's provision, that believing you may have life in his name. That's what this was all about. This wasn't a flex. This wasn't what, let me show you. This wasn't, let me clean your carpet in your room so you'll buy my vacuum cleaner. This is, I'm showing you I'm the Son of God. And I'm wanting you to make a decision to believe fully in me, to trust in me. Numbers of scholars have said when they look at the book of John, John's a prosecuting attorney, okay? And the case he's trying to prove to you and me that are sitting on the jury is this. He's trying to prove Jesus guilty of being the eternal son of God. And he's going to give us seven signs. This is going to be the first one of a miraculous work 
that point to him being guilty of what? Being the son of God. You're sitting on the jury as we go through the book of John. You got to reach a decision. The decision you reach won't affect Jesus. It'll affect you. What do you conclude about Jesus? You know, I think at a time like this, if I didn't say, if you've never come to this decision, I want to offer you the chance to do it right now, right where you sit. That's why John wrote. He said, I spent three years with this guy. I'm convinced he's the son of God. I saw him confirmed dead on a Friday. I saw him buried. I saw him come out Sunday, and, and, and I, I believed in him. Have you come to the point you put your faith in Jesus? For what? For the forgiveness of your sin. And resurrecting from the dead, restoring you to life. If you've never trusted him, I want to invite you to do that right now. John's saying it over and over again. When you believe in him, you can have life. Life what? For the forgiveness of your sin, the restoration of your heart, that you can, instead of living in rebellion to God, you can live in submission to him. If you never made that decision, I invite you to do it now. If you don't understand, please talk to me afterwards. Now, Jesus does something that he often does throughout the Gospels in verse 12. It's this, it says, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Jesus, I mean, he's got a buzz going. I mean, he just turned a bunch of water into wine. You think he'd want to capture the moment and, and get it going, but no, no, no. He pulls back to Capernaum, and he pulls away. We don't know. I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but with his disciples and his brothers, and I think it was, what'd you see there? What'd you see there? Well, why would he do that? Well, think about it. There was a there were servants at the wedding, and there was a, a head waiter, and, 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 you know, there had to be a bit of a buzz. I mean, we, we, we ran out of wine, and this guy, and we filled a couple water pots, and I saw the water go in and came out. It was really good wine, and, and, you know, there's no report that there was any kind of revival here. There's no report that there was mass turning to Jesus. I mean, people just, they were happy for the free drink, and they just, they just kept on. Didn't take time to reflect on what this means. John Mark Comer wrote a book in which entitled The, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he made this point. He said, you know, when we read a biography of Steve Jobs or we read a biography of Abraham Lincoln, we're looking for traits. What is it about these people that, that I might apply to my life? They were very successful as a, a leader of a business or a president of the United States or whatever. He said, why don't we read the Gospels that way? We read for Jesus to get um, some good theology, which is good. I think we ought to get good theology. We get some ethics, Sermon on the Mount, we get some ethics. That, that's good. It's good, good, good. But do we look at him for a lifestyle? You know, nine times in the book of Luke, since Jesus slipped away. Jesus often got away. Are we modeling ourselves after Jesus or we're living so fast? So fast, we don't have time to get away. You talk to people and they say, how are you? And they say, I'm so what? Fill in the blank for you. I'm so what? I'm so, I'm so busy. I'm busy. Pastor, I'm so busy. I'm so, so busy. I don't know how I get this way. And I think I've got, I'm a pastor. I've got special insight. Let me tell you how you get this way. You schedule it. That's how you get this way. That's exactly. Your schedule is as busy as you have made it. 
And we have no time to reflect. And we have no time to catch the significance of Jesus. He did this stuff. These miracles. So you and I would come to faith in him. Yes, he's bringing you to a point of decision. What will you do with the evidence? Man, you're sitting on the jury. You've seen sign one. We're going to see six more. We go through the Gospel of John. And he's writing to convince you for a guilty vote that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. A while back, I read a book on Winston Churchill's first year as the Prime Minister of Britain. And shortly after he started, the, the Nazi bombing campaign starts. It went from September of 1940 to May of 1941, and it was a naked display of power to bring Britain to a place of submission where they would bow the knee to Nazi rule and the Nazis would run over them. Churchill and others weren't having it, and you know the story. They withstood, and eventually Nazi Germany was destroyed. As mighty as those displays of power, Jesus is, is showing much more. But it wasn't to crush you. It wasn't to roll over you. It was to bring you to a point that you would believe in him, and in him you would have life abundantly. You would know freedom. Come, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It wasn't bringing you support. It was bringing you freedom, fullness of life, that you might experience all God has for you. Why did Jesus perform mighty works? Jesus performed mighty works to believe us, to lead us to believe that he is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for Jesus and the fact that he is the Son of God. Um, we're thankful that when he filled those water pots, he didn't fill them halfway, he didn't fill them three quarters, he filled them to the top. His provision is overflowing, it's lavish. Lord, that we draw to that conclusion and come to trust him. Lord, and if Jesus took time to reflect and to get away, that we would follow his, his lifestyle and his lead. Lord, that we just wouldn't be like the people at the wedding who enjoyed the wine and just moved on and nothing changed in their lives. But these works of Jesus would lead us into a deeper relationship, a deeper trust in Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.